I'm Taylor Scalia, and this is Girl, It Is Time to Thrive. Welcome back to another episode today. I have Erica Legenza Gwen on the show today, and she is the podcast host, blogger, content creator, course creator. She has done so much in her life and her business, but I want to talk to her about so many different topics today because why not? She's done so much and we should just like get as much as we possibly can in the next 45 minutes. So Erica, can you please just introduce yourself? Yes, of course. So hello, my name is Erica. Um, Like Taylor said, I've got a blog called Coming Up Roses. I've got a podcast called Thrive, so very fitting here. Um, (laughs) I created a course forever ago called Boss Pitch to help other creators monetize their influence. And I wrote a book called Caffeinate Your Soul, 52 Monday Mantras. Um, And I'm currently working on a second book. And I don't think I have any other, (laughs) I think I'm missing anything. And then I'm a wife and a mama to an almost four-year-old, which absolutely blows my mind. So that's me in a nutshell. That's it, guys. That's all she is. There's nothing to her. She's just pretty cut and dry. I always say that cut and dry. It's black and white. I don't know what I'm saying. Anyways, you have done a lot. So when did you get into the online space? Like, how did this, how did it all start happening? Great question. So (laughs) I was in college at the time and being an influencer, as they say, I hate that word, but that was like not really a thing yet. So it was back when online blogs were essentially like online diaries for people and people were just starting to monetize their influence, as they say. Um, and I was in school at the time at a super rigorous Ivy League college that was sucking the life out of me. And I needed a hobby that did not involve corporate accounting or some like crazy finance class that I wasn't good at and didn't enjoy. And I always loved writing and I had gotten wind that you could create this thing called a blog on the internet and you owned it and you could have full creative control and write whatever you wanted and share whatever you wanted. And I thought this sounded awesome. I was writing for an online publication at the university for the time and I didn't have control and it was just like, I needed, I needed that. So I started my blog um, and that was, oh my gosh, maybe like 2013 ish now and was just like a once a week hobby for me to just write some inspirational content. And I slowly but surely started growing an audience, growing a readership and eventually ended up monetizing it and figured out I could make money from doing so. I think my first sponsored post was for like 50 bucks and a free dress. And I literally thought I hit the lottery. I was like, oh my God, this is the most incredible thing I've ever done in my life. (laughs) Um, And so I kept doing that until I was approaching graduation. And I originally was planning on going into um, like a marketing or brand strategy at an agency sort of route. And I had monetized it to the point where I figured if I gave it full-time effort, I could make full-time income. So that's what I did. I literally just graduated college and went full-time into entrepreneurship right out of the gate. And then shortly thereafter, I created my course because I wanted to then, at the time, people were not talking about how to make money on the internet, let alone how to make it your full-time job. So made that as a resource to help other aspiring content creators make it happen And then shortly after that, started the podcast. And then two years after that, in 2020, my first book came out. Um, And then now here we are. (laughs) And now it's 2022. So 
rocking and rolling journey yeah it's been a ride so I love that you're just like oh it's just a blog because that's really what 2013 2014 era I'm because that's when I was in college too and it's like originally in college I ended up going back as you know because I was on your show last week but you I remember like hearing like Instagram and I was like what is this Instagram thing and it's like okay I'll post a picture and like there's blogs and so you really jumped in at such a prime time and like trusted your gut to do so so I think that's awesome but then if now that I'm like hearing your whole story like the timeline 2018 you start thrive 2018 you gave birth yes Okay. So I know, because obviously I've talked to you and I read the bio and everything, we're going to go into it. In 2018, you had a really traumatic birthing experience. And on the other side of this, you're starting a podcast. So (laughs) let's just talk about the birthing experience. What happened? And let's just start with that. What happened? Oh yeah. So this is This was like one of those pivotal life experiences where you think it's going to go one way and you have this like whole thing in your head of what's going to happen. And I feel like with birth, this is very common because people plan out their birth plan and they envision what it's going to be like, especially if you're a first time parent. Um, And I had no idea what to expect and never even had envisioned myself being a mom. So this was like uncharted territory. So basically to to sum it all up, I had a pretty normal, pretty great pregnancy. Um, didn't get nauseous once, literally was living the dream up until a, my 30 week appointment. So I had gone in and the doctor was like, mm, you're measuring kind of small. So I want to send you in for further testing. And up until then, I didn't have any symptoms of anything. Nothing was off. Everything was just like moving and grooving. So I ended up going in for further testing and they (laughs) realized that my daughter was in fact measuring small and things were just not really looking at the pace that they should have been looking at. And they figured that at this point I would end up not necessarily going a full 40 weeks. They were kind of putting me at, okay, I think at like 37 weeks you're going to have to be induced because what was happening was my placenta was essentially like disintegrating. So if anyone does not know, your placenta essentially like feeds your baby while they're in the womb. So it's not really great if that just starts going away. So um, then it just kind of became like a, a week by week thing. I was going to have to go back in for testing and get my heart rate checked, baby's heart rate checked, all of that jazz. So I ended up going in then um, the next week and as I was getting into the car to go to the hospital, I, I started blacking out a little bit. Like my vision was getting weird and I was kind of lightheaded. My husband was driving separately because he had to go to work right after and the hospital was five minutes away. We didn't really think anything of it. And I get to the hospital and my blood pressure is through the roof. So I think it was like literally 180 over 120. So for anybody who doesn't know, that's like literally hypertensive. That's, that's like code red blood pressure. Not good. Um, so I was getting my ultrasounds done, all of that jazz at this point, I'm about, well, at this point I was 32 weeks, six days when I went in for this particular visit and the ultrasound tech left the room. It was the longest 45 minutes of my life until a hospitalist came in And he looked at me and he was like, Erica, you're sicker than you feel like, and he goes, you're at 
a severe risk of a stroke, a seizure, or both. So we have to take the baby oh, wow. out. And I was like, you have to take the baby out. What? I'm 32 weeks. Like this is, huh? And I said, um, so like, when are we, are we just like, get, should I get my schedule out? Are we, are we making this happen? Like, is this tomorrow later? And he just kind of looked at me with a blank face. He's like, no, this is happening today. Like as soon as an operating table opens up, I was like, huh? what? <laughs> like, oh, so at this point, my husband had already left to go back to work. He was thinking, we were thinking this was just like a routine checkup. So I had to call him and say, James, um, yeah, so we're having a baby today. I need you to come back to the hospital. Um, apparently I am now an emergency C-section. So at this point, I'm freaking out because uh, who wants to hear that? Um, and literally just had to wait until an operating table opened up and had an emergency C-section. At this point, they also had started me on a drug called magnesium sulfate to keep me from having a seizure or a stroke. Um, actually, I think that was for seizure primarily. It keeps you from seizing. And that drug, if anyone has not been on it, is the most horrible thing. One of my best friends had chemotherapy as a teenager, and she said, and has been on magnesium sulfate. And she said, it's the closest thing to chemo that she's ever experienced. It is like, it makes you just feel horrible. So at this point, I'm also starting to get loopy because <laughs> that's getting in my system to keep me from dying, literally. And I ended up having her. Um, she was came out feisty, <laughs> which is on it checks out with how her personality is now. And at this point, they ended up having to take her right to the NICU because she was only th a 32 week old baby. Um, so not supposed to be, not supposed to be in the world yet. Took her right to the NICU, took me right for more medical monitoring myself. Um, and then I didn't even get too whole until the next day because I would, when, when you're on that drug, you are so out of it. It wasn't even considered safe for me to hold her after giving birth to her. Um, so at that point, it literally just became 24 hours of monitoring my health, monitoring her. And then we had a very long NICU journey after that. So for as traumatic as the birth itself was physically, I think more of the trauma set in for me with how long our NICU stay was, because that was something where it was, you were never had solid answers, never knew for sure what was happening or when, besides the fact that your hormones are raging postpartum and you're not even physically with your baby all the time. Um, that was a lot because we ended up being in the NICU for 73 days and we ended oh. up having to switch NICUs around the 30 day mark because Olivia had essentially a near death experience where she was having a, um, she developed this weird bacterial infection that the NICU doctors had no idea how she would have gotten it. So around the 30 day mark, she ended up developing something that apparently, is on, only comes from handling raw meat or handling like raw poultry. So everyone in the NICU was very confused because it's a sterile NICU. She had never left it. And everyone who enters the NICU is you have, you have to wash up. Like it's a very thorough process. There's no way that this bacteria realistically would have gotten inside. So everyone was very confused as to how this happened or why and they ended up basically saying, we don't know how to help her anymore here. We have to send her to a higher level NICU. So NICUs come in levels based on 
the intensity of care that needs to be provided to the babies. So basically the earlier you're born, the higher level NICU you're going to be at because you need much more intense medical um, help and equipment and supervision and all of that. So she ended up getting um, met, um, sent in an ambulance to a higher level NICU that was about an, a little over an hour from her house. So then that became the next month. And then some just became, that was our whole life was just work during the day. And then as soon as work was done, drive and spend all night at the NICU, then drive home and hit repeat. So yeah, that was, that's the very, the quick version of gosh, what was like the craziest and wildest and also darkest and saddest, but also happiest, like what a weird swing of emotions um, time in our lives so far. Wow. So 73 days. How long was she at the lower level before she went to the second, the the higher level? A month, literally almost 30 days. Exactly. She was three pounds, 0.6 ounces when she was born. So she was just like, you could literally fit her in the two palms of your hands. (laughs) Like it's crazy. mm Mm-hmm. So a month in, now she's being sent over. How were you able, I mean, like you said, it's it was the darkest days. You had some excitement because you have a child. How are you able to hold on to hope, especially like, it's not like it's 10 minutes down the road. It's an hour drive. And, you know, I don't know about anyone else, but sometimes when you're driving, you, that's it. You can, f- you're sitting with yourself. Yes. You're feeling, you're feeling all everything. of your feelings. Yep. So, you know, people- like it's not just like you're driving an hour it's like you're driving an hour you're alone you're feeling I mean you've had your husband but like there may have been days you went by yourself too or he went by himself or in the car but you are just feeling your feelings that anxiety of what is going to happen when I get there what am I going to see how are you able to hold on to hope and really have some faith to get you through great question so I mean, I'm not going to lie. It was really, really hard. Um, I would say first and foremost, and most importantly, it was our faith, our faith in God, that was the sole thing that got us through. Um, Because that was like, gosh, what can I liken it to? I mean, I feel like it would be literally like being in a desert where you don't know if you're going to find water. Like we knew at the end of this, hypothetically speaking, our baby would come home. Like, we're like, okay, she can't be in the NICU forever. She's not going to like go to kindergarten from the hospital. Like at some point there is an end in sight, but the hardest thing about being in the NICU is there's so much changes from one day to the next, and nobody can give you a set answer for anything. And I'm somebody where, especially if it's something medical related, I want clear answers. I want confidence. I want like clarity on what's happening and when and why, and like all of that thing, all of that. So I'm not, I don't do very well if somebody's like, well, it might happen today. It might happen tomorrow. We don't really know. We just have to wait and see. And I'm like, but this is, this is supposed, like, none of this is going according to plan. This is not, (laughs) like, can we not just wait and see? So um, holding on to hope was kind of hard too, because you, you're relying on this, like, little tiny baby to do certain things. So like they would have kind of like a checklist of like, these are the things she has to be able to do before she can go home. Like she has to be able to be, um, so for her in particular, she was having what are called bradycardiac events. So it would be a combination of a rise, a drop in 
oxygen saturation levels and a drop in heart rate. So if that would happen, it could require stimulation from a nurse. Like essentially they're like blacking out or like, it could be, it could be very, very bad. So anytime that would happen, the NICU monitors would start beeping and it would go off and it would essentially start her count over. So for some perspective, when she first was in the NICU, she could, she might've been having like 10 events a day. Like it was, it was a lot, um, to, to be discharged from the second NICU, she had to go five consecutive days, completely event free. So it was a journey where we weren't really, it was really hard to stay hopeful through it because any single, any event would start the count over. So to go from having like 10 events in a day to go five days without having any, we were like, dude, this is literally not happening. Like she's, we should just move into the hospital at this point. And this is where we're going to live because how we were like, how's, how's it going to happen? Like she has to grow so much and there's just such a long road ahead. And any little thing that sets it off is going to restart the count. So there were definitely points where we were just sad and we were just so depressed. I don't want to say hopeless because we always were clinging on to our own faith. And I think we were trying really, really hard to just believe like, okay, it's in God's time. It's in God's hands. So that's not like if she she's with at this point, she was at one of the best children's hospitals in the entire world. So we were like, if there's hypothetically no better human hands to be taking care of her, it's if she's if she has an event at home or God forbid something life threatening happens, obviously that wouldn't be good. So we just kept reminding ourselves like, OK, this absolutely sucks. But at some point, this story will be bigger than her and it will be bigger than us. And it will be something that we'll look back on and maybe we'll be able to piece the put the pieces together as to why this is happening. But I think the hardest part for us was not being able to do that in the moment. Because mm -hmm. for me, my biggest thing was I kept just thinking like, why 73 days? Like, why couldn't it have been 30 days? Why couldn't it have been 42 days? Like, as the count just kept going on, I just kept being like, God, why? Like, this is too long. I get it. I got the point. I'm sad. Like, it could you could have had the same effect on day 17. Like, but then I say that out loud and I'm like, well, could it have had the same effect? Like, maybe, maybe that did have some specific impact that it was specifically that number of days for a reason. And that was the thing that I got so hung up on was like, why that amount of days? Because every, especially towards the end, it was just agonizing and so hard to hold on to hope. And even though we knew there was an end and we just didn't know exactly when, it was just like that, that game of time was unbearable at so many at so many times so I don't know if that totally answers the question but <laughs> it really just was a matter of just continuously reminding ourselves that like she's gonna come home at some point it's not gonna be forever and there has to be some sort of greater purpose in this and some sort of glory to come from her story because there's no I mean, we know he works all things together for our good and there's no way that this can mm -hmm. just be bad. Like there's, there's some good in it somewhere. So it was just a matter of continuously praying to see that and feel that even if it wasn't in the moment, if it would be at some point down the road where we would just feel comforted by that and not feel 
resentful or bitter or like that time was stolen from us because that's 100% how it felt in the moment. Mm-hmm. And hopefully this isn't too direct, but how, I mean, th- I'm not a mom, but I know from just people in my life that are moms and my own mom, pain happening to you versus pain happening to your child is a different ball game. So I am actually going to direct the question at you though. How are you, if at all, taking care of yourself and your mind to stay hopeful for when you bring home this child? Because that was the hope. That was the end goal. That was what you were praying for. That when she does come home, you can't just be like, well, now I have PTSD and I am having night terrors and all this stuff. Because then you had to like go into mom role. How do I want to word this question? How are you able to take care of yourself for when she did come home? Yeah. You were able to be present. So great question. Um, I did have PTSD. I mean, I was diagnosed with that from a therapist afterwards. Yeah. I had PTSD. I had postpartum depression. So it was really freaking hard during our stay in the NICU. Um, this was around the time that Shit's Creek came out on Netflix and that I can confidently say all credit to Shit's Creek for getting us through <laughs> our second leg of our NICU stay because that was, we would come home exhausted and all we would do was sit on the couch and watch 30 minutes to make us laugh. And that show could make me laugh and put a smile on my face. Same with my husband. So we were like, it, we were at the point where we were, we would just seek out any little thing that we knew would make us feel something other than sadness. So that for Mm -hmm. us at that point, it was Schitt's Creek where we were like, you know what? We just, (laughs) I know we need to smile. I just need to feel an emotion. That's not just sad. So we would find little pieces of bliss like that. Um, it was, it was one of those things where I think it was more symptom management for me at the time, because in the moment, I don't really know how many people can identify something like PPD, especially as a first time parent. Because I think right first off, you might be thinking, oh, it's just the baby blues or whatever, but you, and you're so in this cloud of what's happening and like the newborn lifestyle and everything like that, where I didn't, I don't think I necessarily took the time to check in with myself and be like, what are these feelings that I'm feeling? Like mm-hmm. you really are just in survival mode, totally not thriving. <laughs> just in survival mode for yourself and your kid where you're like, I just need to keep getting up and showing up so that my child is okay and healthy and alive and eating and all of that jazz. And you're just like getting sleep whenever you, whenever you can. So I think at some point I started to try to shift my mindset a little bit to the, the, I was about to say blessings, which feels so weird coming out of my mouth because that's not at all how I thought of it at the time. But since she was in the NICU and essentially I was like, you know what? I have help taking care of my newborn because you have all of these NICU nurses and NICU doctors take helping with all of these functions. So I was able to have some sort of like a little transition from work because I was able, I I wasn't, it wasn't like fully flipping a switch of like, you don't have a baby and now you do. It almost became like a weird little transitional period for me, both from a work sense, from a mental sense, from all of this, where I was kind of, it almost felt like warming up to being a parent because I had never been a parent before. And I was like, always thought it was weird that you go from never having a baby to like in two days, here you go, take them home and go, go forth and thrive. And you're like, who, who gave me permission for this? 
So I kind of just started thinking of it as like, all right, I'm like warming up to motherhood here where every single day I'm seeing my baby and getting to take care of her when I'm with her. But when I'm not with, I get a break almost. And somebody else who's deals with babies all the time is able to help me take care of her and teach me things when I'm there. So for as sad as I was in the time, looking back, I was like, you know what? I probably learned a lot and at least kind of mentally transitioned in a little bit in doing that. And I was able to, you know, like, like I said, like watch an episode of Shit's Creek with my husband and just do some things just to kind of feel something other than what we were feeling. So mm-hmm. it wasn't a time of like great self-care by any means. And I'm it, but I also don't know how anyone, unless you go into it, really prepared for something like that to happen. I don't necessarily know how people can go into something so unexpected and traumatic and in the moment be like, oh yes, I'm going to thrive through this. I almost feel like it's a little bit more of like, you figure it out in the moment. And then in hindsight, you're like, okay, I I can see where I did well. I could see where I would try to do things a little bit differently if I had to go through something like this again, but especially for like a first time experience with trauma. I'd give myself like maybe a B. <laughs> I mean, a B is pretty good. Uh, no one, I don't think anyone would ever expect you to be thriving through that. You know, the fact that you were able to watch an episode of Shit's Creek and try to smile, which you cannot not watch Shit's Creek and smile. Right. It is the funniest show. It's just, it's good humor. But I think that that says a lot about you and your husband and when you're going through something traumatic, it is the little things. Yes. Because when you're in trauma, your mind, like you said, you're not going to be like, well, how can I sit here and just kill it today? No, you are in fight or flight mode. You want to survive. You just want to get through this moment. And it is, it's the little things when you look back on it, like you said, that help with that. So you're going through this. Did you start the podcast like when she came home, like how, I want to like tie that in. Cause how did you do that in the same year? Okay. Thinking back, I feel like my podcast must've been 2019 that it started because okay. there's no way that I would have started that. Cause it started in October and I gave birth in October. So I'm thinking back and I'm like, there's no way I did that in the exact same time frame. That <laughs> seems like that would have been crazy. Um, so I, I'm going to, I think it was 2019 and I feel like it was once I was kind of a little bit in the swing now of having her home with me and like getting into, okay, I'm in mom mode. And now I'm trying to be like a work at home parent and do all of my job stuff while having her as, I mean, she would have been about one at that time. That feels like that would have checked out a lot more than me launching it. Uh, when I just came home from all of that happening. So let's say 2019 was the year the podcast started because that feels a little bit more accurate. Still within the first year, uh, like I said, not a mom, but I see my friends, my family, my brother. That's a lot in one year to be like, okay, we're going to start another aspect of our business. So in what year did you write the book again? 2020? That came out 2020. Yeah. Yeah. So you had a busy couple of years with, uh, with a toddler, with an, like a two-year-old. So one and two-year-old. So I applaud you for that. But one of the things that you said in your, um, your bio 
was that you are a recovering girl boss rejecting hustle culture. I loved that because I think in 2022, we're getting a little bit better at it. But for a few years there, girl boss was the only title. If you, you were killing it, you're an entrepreneur, you're independent. There was a lot of good and value into that word. But now when you really dissect it, it's not taking care of yourself, not having boundaries, doing anything you possibly can just for, in my opinion, everyone, this is my opinion, hit high levels of money success. But what about relationship success? What about motherhood success? So when you say you're a recovering girl, bo- girl boss and you're rejecting hustle culture, can we just chat about that? Because you're a new mom. People would say you're a girl boss. You're killing it. How can you counteract that and encourage people that that's not always the best way to be? Yeah. Uh, so I actually started really thinking about that a lot because people would always tell me that. And I think for a while I tried to wear it like a badge of honor Mm -hmm. and was like, absolutely. That's what I'm going to be. It's what I'm going to aspire to be. I'm a girl boss. Heck yeah. And really, I think I just got to a point in my life where it became impossible to do all of the things that I wanted to do well, well, something had to give. And this is, there might be people listening who are like, well, obviously like (laughs) something's got to give, you can't do it all, all the time. I just really kind of came to terms with the fact that there's a season for everything. And what do you want the most important things to be in your life? What matters the most to you? What do you want people to say about you, your friends, your family, even your coworkers or whoever, when you're all done? Like, do you want to be the person who is just, like you said, hustling all the time, no boundaries, just striving after the next money marker? I think for me, it just really came to a crossroads where I realized that that just wasn't what was most important to me anymore. And I think for a while, especially in the business that I'm in and the job that I'm in, it was a little bit too easy to get attached to numbers. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a content creator, you're looking at following numbers, engagement numbers. You're looking at the numbers that you're charging brands for partnerships and deals. And like, there is no ceiling. So it's very easy to fall into this trap of more, 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 what's next, what's bigger, what's better, what's, what's whatever. And when you realize that it's something that doesn't actually have a ceiling, I think that's when you question it because you have to look at yourself and go, what is enough? What am I actually okay with at the end of the day? Because I'm either going to give 100% of me to this, which could go on forever and have no limits hypothetically or, but then that, what is that at the expense of? Mm. And that for me, that was at the expense of quality time with my family and just other things that weren't connected to making money or building a business. I think I just came to a point where I was like, you know what, there's other things in my life that I want to matter just as much, if not more. And at the pace that I was going at, it just wasn't possible. So I just, that was really what the crux of it was for me. I mean, looking back at when I did start the podcast, that kind of came from a realization a year into having my daughter where I had been in survival mode for so long and I was trying to do everything well. I was trying to be a great mom and be a great content creator and do put all of the things out for all of the people. 
but I was just surviving. Like I was, I was totally not thriving. I was at this place of just running on empty all the time and constantly pouring from an empty cup. And I just knew that that was not sustainable and it was not what the people around me deserved because it wasn't my best. And that moment became, all right, I'm switching from a life of surviving to thriving here. What changes do I need to make to make that happen? And I honestly think that's kind of what's maybe started the journey for me, or at least the thought process back then, because it became, all right, you can't just burn the candle at both ends for an indefinite period of time. You will burn out. And then when you burn out, you are going to, everything is going to suffer. Your work will suffer. Your health will suffer in literally every sense. The people around you will suffer because you're totally not going to be a good time to be around. And at that point, you're just kind of like, what is the point? Because everybody, including yourself, deserves better than that. So I think it really is just a worthwhile thing to look into what success truly means for you and look into what enough is for you and what that looks like and what that feels like and align your values and pick your priority accordingly because you might be running at a pace that feels really good right now. But if you start throwing in things while you're running and people start throwing things at you to catch, can you catch them without them falling to the ground and shattering? And if the answer is no, then I think it's a time to really think about, all right, slow down your pace so that you can catch what you want to catch and still run your race well and not drop, not drop glass balls in the process that are going to shatter and not be able to be picked up after that. Mm. There's definitely a theme in your life of surviving and going to thriving. You have taken different aspects of your life between the childbirth incident to being able to write blog posts about it, to share your story, to creating a podcast called thriving, which, you know, that, that is the point we, that is, I feel like a lot of people's end goal. So if someone is listening to this and they're like, I'm going to drop stuff as someone throws something, what would three tips be that are very practical that someone can start adding into their, their life to help them either slow down the pace or keep it going and get, have someone help them with it. So what can people do to do to do that? Yeah. Well, first I would say it's not a matter of adding something. It's about subtracting. So I think saying no is something that scares people a lot, but right off the bat, I think people have, you have to look at your life and realistically assess how often you say yes to things that you don't actually want to do things that you feel obligated to do things that you're doing because you want to please somebody else or make somebody happy, or you don't want to let somebody down but in your heart of hearts, you're like not actually in it. That right there, those are easy things to cut. They might not feel easy in the moment, especially if you're someone who does not love saying no, but I would encourage you to think of it as in, you're not letting somebody else down by saying no. You're letting somebody down by saying yes to something that you can't actually give 100% to or that you can't give your best to because they deserve your best, right? So if you if you are looking at something and you know right off the bat, it's not going to be, it might be half-assed. It's not going to be your best work. You're just doing it because you don't want to say no. Then that's something you should be saying no to. And there are easy ways to do that. You can, you can say to someone, you're not just saying like, yeah, no. You're saying, you know, listen, I would love to, but unfortunately I don't have the capacity for it at this time. Mm-hmm. 
boom, you're, you're saying no, but you're also being very honest in that your cup is pretty full right now. You can't put more in it. Um, so I would say, say no more. Um, second, I would say, watch how you're blocking your time. Um, because there's ways that you can block your time so that you are hitting all of the different buckets of your life in a little bit of a more balanced way. So this was, this is something where I would say, write out all of the different roles that you have in your life right now. Are you an entrepreneur? Okay. Are you a wife, a mom, a friend, a sister, a daughter, any role that takes up some semblance of time from you and rank them in order of importance to you. And that might feel like wild, but do it. I swear it works. Rank them in order of importance to you. And now you can literally add those as blocks on your calendar. So give yourself a block, make them obviously time relative to the amount of time that you have to devote to the task in a given day. So obviously your job might take a little bit more than like a, I don't know, your role as like third cousin twice removed, but um, put that physically on your calendar so that in a given day you have a block that is okay. Entrepreneur block. Now you, now you can switch gears and you can go to your role as a partner. And now if there's things that are to do's that are somehow related to your relationship, you can get them done in that time. Maybe you have a block that's related to your role as a parent. And that is one-on-one dedicated, undistracted phone-free time with your kid. Maybe you have a, maybe you have a really quick block in there. That's like a 10 minute block for your friends, where if you have texts that you need to respond to, you respond to them all in that time so that it's not something that is constantly pinging literally in your brain all throughout a day, but something that you can have on silent and then give 100% dedicated attention to at a smaller interval of time at the end of the day where you're still hitting that. Little shifts like that, I think, are like ways to get it all done, so to speak, but you're just shifting how you're using that time so that it's not something that is like all happening at the same time, so to speak, where it's more overwhelming. It's more switching back and forth happening in your brain, which is scientifically not not good for your brain. Um, and it also just, it helps you still feel like you are um, not having to cut things right away, so to speak. But you are kind of also still cutting things, if that, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, those are some tips I would say to start off with. I love those. Those are so good. The time blocking one where like you put your, like you, I don't know, you rate your roles. That is kind of powerful because you really get to see what's a priority because you can easily be like, well, being a daughter is a priority, but it's like, well, or my business is a really big priority. So there's a lot of power in that. You kind of take control of what is most important in your life. So that, that, that's a good one. And-, well, and I think it's a key for before just cutting things out mm-hmm. because it helps you it in before you go into the process of cutting things out or setting priorities or whatever, even goal setting. I think we, we tend to just kind of throw a whole bunch on there without necessarily checking in with why it's on the list. So I think if you go through first and make those people priorities, those role priorities, things like that, 
it makes the saying no process and it makes the goal setting processes and it makes all of that easier because it might, it might eliminate some things for you right off the bat. Like, and you might feel a pain, a pang of guilt at first, but you don't necessarily then have to, you can kind of move on through it because you're like, no, this is, it's just real. It's mm-hmm. just how, it's just how your life is prioritized. It's how your roles are prioritized. And it makes it easier then to say no to certain things because you look at that and you're like, huh, what role does that fit in? Oh, it fits under my seventh prioritized role. Okay. Well, it no longer is going to get this, the, the bump over things or activities that are first or second on my list of roles. Like now all of a sudden it makes it easier to say no to certain things because you just realize you're like, oh, that's actually not my key priority, at least in this season. So it makes that a little easier on yourself. So good. So helpful. And just to kind of close out, where can people find you? What are you working on? You said you're working on another book. I don't know if you're allowed to talk about it yet, but we would love to hear everything. I am working on another book. Um, it do- It is actually kind of in line with projecting hustle culture and all of that jazz. So that is exciting. Awesome. Um, you can find me online at cominguproseestheblog.com. Um, on the Thrive Podcast. You can, of course, go listen to Taylor's episode with me on the Thrive <laughs> Podcast because it was awesome. Um, and you can find me on Instagram at Erica Legenza. It's E-R-I-C-A-L-I-G-E-N-Z-A. And that is all the fun daily happenings and behind the scenes over there. And everything will be linked below. So if you're listening to this and you're like, wait, how, did, how do you spell that again? It's all going to be below. <laughs> and I just want to say thank you again so much for taking the time to be on here. This has been so helpful learning about your story, learning more about you. And of course, those really incredible tips at the end were awesome. Hey, thank you for having me. I hope that you guys enjoy this episode. Erica is so awesome. I mean, her story is just so inspiring. The fact that she was able to hold on to hope, have faith that her baby was coming home while also maintaining building a business and building something super, super successful. And I just recommend giving her a follow because her content is so good. She is just incredible at it. And the fact that she has created courses, created a very popular blog, a very popular podcast, her books, and the fact that she's writing another book about hustle culture. I don't know about you guys, but that is definitely a book that I'm going to be reading. So everything is linked below. And as always, be kind to somebody, eat some really good food, and pat yourselves on the back because it is your time to thrive and that starts within. Bye.